Well, happy Easter. Actually, the way you say it in the church is, He is risen. And you say back, There you go. We've been doing it all morning, so now I'm in, in the habit. We've done variations on a theme, too. Christ is risen. Christ is, yeah. He is risen. He is risen. Absolutely. We know the Easter story in theory. Lots of different versions of it in different Gospels. Different details in different accounts. But do we believe the Easter story? You see, at Easter, we celebrate it. Oh, this happened way back in the day. And we know that it's true on some intellectual level. But what I want to talk about this morning is not so much the details of the story as it is the power of that story in our life. Because if we truly have faith in a resurrection, which, by the way, is part of the gospel, we talk about the crucifixion, our, the Christian faith is marked by a cross. But the gospel or the good news really is the empty tomb. I guess an empty tomb hanging around your neck would be a lot heavier than a cross, you know? But both are equally essential to the truth of the gospel. If Jesus is still crucified, we're wasting our time. So when we say we believe this, we want to launch into what does, the, what does that mean to believe in a resurrected Jesus? How does that shape us? How does that change us? And why does it matter? You see, the whole world might believe, most of the world believes in some higher power, right? There's some God out there somewhere. If you go read the statistics, it's like, at least in the United States, it's like 90% of people believe there's God, maybe. Some variation on the theme. Some ch church practice or maybe just a belief in a higher power that's out there, but they just don't know anything about them. There, but people believe there's God. And so most people will have no problem with Christians who say, we believe God is true. And then you have some people who have no problem with Christians following the teachings of Jesus because most of the world at least accepts the historical Jesus as a really good teacher. Somebody who taught a way that we should live. And so most people will be like, okay, if Christians want to follow him, that's, that makes sense. He was a really good teacher. But when you start talking about resurrection... When you start talking about a person coming back from the dead, it starts to sound like complete foolishness to the world. Like, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. He was a good teacher, but the Romans executed him. What are you talking about? How in the world can we be talking about a person back from the dead? Because people just don't come back from the dead. I mean, it doesn't happen, right? It doesn't. Anybody's, if you've seen that, let me know. It doesn't happen. And so the world goes... Okay, we're with you on God exists. We're with you on Jesus as a good moral teacher. But back from the dead? Yeah, you're weird. And it is a radical idea. Well, Paul had, the Apostle Paul, it was no different. Nothing has changed. It was no different in the early days of the church. Oh, the Christians were a sect of Judaism. That's nice. Until Romans started persecuting them for saying that Jesus was God and not Caesar. Then it became a political issue. It became a life-threatening issue. And so when, when they say that we really believe this, they were putting themselves out there. And there were people in the church that were not even necessarily sure about this Jesus resurrection thing. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, he start, Paul makes his case about Jesus and the resurrection. That's, that's the account we're going to read this morning. 
Now, this is Paul talking. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which you also stand, through which you are also being saved. If you hold firm to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then He appeared to James then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. Now, if, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some say there is no re- resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain. Your faith has been in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ whom he did not whom if he whom he did not raise if it were if it is true that the dead are not raised sorry muddled that one for a second for if the dead are not raised then Christ has not been raised if Christ has not been raised your faith is futile and you are still in your sin then those who also have died in Christ have perished if for this life only we hope in Christ we are also people we are also we are of all people most most to be pitied. This is a large print Bible and I'm still fumbling. Okay. (laughs) But in fact, Christ has raised from the dead the first fruits of these who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead also came through a human being. For all who die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then coming as those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. Long passage, but Paul is making a tremendous theological case. He says, first of all, I want you to understand the good news. Good news meaning that's our word for gospel. I want you to get the essential theological truth that Christ died. And he says, he says, uh, especially for those of you who are persisting in the faith or encouraging you to persist in the faith. Now, why would he have to tell Christians do you still believe the good news? Why would he be saying, are you, have you hung on? Have you endured? Have you continued to believe? Because as I was alluding to earlier, professing faith in Christ in Paul's day could cost you everything. It could cost you friends. It could cost you family. It could cost you your job. And so he's checking with him. He's like, I have proclaimed the gospel that, I was, that was given to me, that you have taken your stand. He says, taking your stand. They're making a theological statement. They're making a political statement when they call Jesus Lord and not Caesar. 
They're taking a, they are taking a counter-cultural stand, if you will. And there is a societal price for that faith because they're standing in direct opposition to the culture. Because in our day, everybody loves Christians now. Nothing's different, right? In other words, Christians were hated then by the world and the Christians can be persecuted and hated now. Around the world, it still happens. We don't experience it in the United States the way it does in some places of the world. But the faith is not always received the way we would think. For Paul, there are two elements that are most essential to the gospel. This is what I was talking about a minute ago. The death of Christ. Notice he says, according to the scriptures. Did it occur to you what scriptures he might be talking about? He alludes to the death of Christ. He says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He has to be talking about the Old Testament. Because the New Testament is being, he's writing part of it. It hasn't been written. It hasn't been circulated. It hasn't been published. So when he says Christ died according to the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. Which means he can find the gospel in the Old Testament. He can find the prophecy of what Jesus would do for us in the Old Scriptures. This is Isaiah 53. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form of majesty that he would be, we would look at him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others. A man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one whom others hide their faces. He was despised and was held. They held him, we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. And we accounted him stricken. Struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the punishment that made, made us whole. And by his bruises we were healed. All we like sheep who have gone astray, we have turned to our own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Paul says, Christ was crucified for our sin like it says in Scripture. Who's Isaiah predicting at this point? He's talking about the Son of Man. He is promising in Isaiah that the Messiah would have to be crushed for our sin. That's why when you get to John 3, and Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he's telling him about being born again and all that thing, and Nicodemus is confused, Jesus looks at him and goes, aren't you a teacher of the Bible to people? How do you not see the truth about the Messiah in the Scriptures? Nicodemus missed it. The Jewish leaders missed it. Isaiah is proclaiming that the Messiah would have to be crushed for our iniquity. So Paul says, death according to the Scriptures... But then he says, resurrection according to the scriptures as well. In verses 10 through 12, that, that same passage I was reading, it talks about the fact that through the Son of Man, all the blessings will come to God's people. What blessings could he be talking about? The promise of grace and forgiveness because our iniquities have been paid for by him. Christ died for our sins. This is what he says in verses 3 and 4. Christ was buried. And rose on the third day. God the Father raised the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a Trinitarian expression of the gospel right there. God the Father raised the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. All three persons present 
in the most pivotal moment in history. The moment we have to have to have our sins paid for. He says, some people don't believe in a resurrection. He says, if that's true, then Christ is still dead and we're still dead. And it's the resurrection is a pivotal piece of the good news. Now, if that wasn't enough, that's in the Old Testament scriptures. In verses 5 through 8, he starts laying out his case, right? He says, first he appeared to Peter and the twelve, then to all the followers, to more than 500 people. So if anybody ever tells you that the Christian faith was like Peter and the guys going, hey, Let's get a conspiracy going and tell everybody that Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus appeared to 500 more or more people in the flesh after he died, after he was resurrected. It started in the garden. It, the, the ladies, they ran and told Peter, Peter and John run to the tomb. Tomb's empty. <laughs> and it went on from there. And then, he, but then an empty tomb by itself, it's like, okay, even Mary was like, where did you take the body? But then Jesus starts to appear and reveal himself to his apostles. And what's interesting is the way Paul talks about it, he says to Peter and the, the twelve and then to all the apostles and then to somebody as if they're untimely born, Paul. He goes, he appeared to me. Now, what's he talking about there? He's talking about that his vision or his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Um, little sidebar here. I have my own little pet. This is... When I, every time I say, like, pet theory, you need to test it yourself, okay? This is a Charlie opinion. Charlie has lots of opinions about stuff. It's fun. I just like to dig into this stuff. This is a Charlie opinion. You ever wonder what they did about replacing Judas? I know in the first part of Acts, what does it say? They cast lots and they picked this guy, Matthias, and he became an apostle. But you never hear about Matthias ever again. Anywhere in the New Testament. So I have a Charlie theory that Paul was Jesus' choice for number 12. Maybe it's a little more than a Charlie theory. Because Paul is calling himself in this passage an apostle. Now what, what separates these apostles from the other disciples? Jesus calling them himself. Hey, James and John, come be fishers of men. All those stories in the Gospels. Jesus went around and handpicked his 12, including Judas, by the way. And then Jesus, it is Jesus who stops Paul on the road to Damascus and says, why are you persecuting me? Now you're going to be my missionary to the Gentiles. Guess what that makes him in my book? Number 12. Because you don't hear any. Matthias probably did some great stuff. It isn't in there. Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, planted hundreds of churches all over the Mediterranean Sea. I wonder who the 12th apostle was. But Paul's making the same case, right? He says, as if I was born out of sync. I, wasn't, I was too young when you were in, your, in your personal ministry, but then you appeared to me anyway and counted me as an apostle anyway. And then he says an amazing thing about it. He says, I didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve to be counted that way because I persecuted the church of God. Now, think about this. Jesus chooses his disciples in his earthly ministry. He goes up to Peter, James, and John. They're like fishing. They're like, hey, you guys are like me. You're like fishing. Let's go. You know, that's no big deal. That, that's not a big surprising thing. Paul had Christians executed. And that's the guy you choose for number 12? Now, what does that say? 
about Jesus and his attitude toward us. Paul's saying it. He goes, I was born out of sync. I wasn't born at the right time to be part of the original 12, but you counted me part of the 12, even though I had your church persecuted. Your grace and your power. I can't. He's basically not, he's not bragging about being one of the 12. He's like, I can't believe it. I can't believe that you would count me among your followers because I killed your followers. Now that's pretty much rebelling against God, right? Because then he says, and believe it, the power of God in my life was true because then he does brag a little bit. I've worked harder than everybody else. Well, I just told you what he's accomplished, right? Two-thirds of the New Testament planted dozens and dozens and dozens of churches all over the Mediterranean Sea. Peter and James and John are like, dude, you're making us look bad. You know? <laughs> like he, God definitely used him. In fact, God called him in particular to be his voice to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. It took 11 disciples to convert the Jews and Paul to go to the Gentiles. I'm exaggerating a little bit now, but you get what I'm saying. Paul's like, I can't believe this, but you don't have to believe what I'm saying. Look at what I've done. Look at what, and not even what I've done, he says in verse 14, but what the grace of God has done through me. He goes, this, it isn't even me. It's only possible because of God's grace in my life. Otherwise, it wouldn't have worked. There's no way. That's actually verse 11. He's making this case of humility, of being used by God by the power of a resurrected Jesus who called him himself. He's making that case. And then he talks about why this is such a big deal. Why is the truth of the resurrection so important? Because, hey, if you just want a religious faith and you want somewhere to go on Sunday morning and feel good about yourself, cool. But if we really have faith in a resurrected Jesus, it led Paul to write, to plant, to share the gospel, to do all the things that he felt like God was calling him to do and God used him to do. And he, and he will tell you, by God's power, not mine. But there's some implications for this. Look at uh, verses 12 through 19 again. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? You know, how can you say that? That's not, if, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. And we are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified that God raised Christ. What is he saying about how important the resurrection is? If Christ wasn't, if people, if people can't be resurrected, if God can't resurrect somebody, then Jesus is still dead. If Jesus is still dead, then the apostles' own teaching is in vain. The sermon I'm preaching right now is in vain if it's not true. That's what he would have said. More than that, the people who are reading the Corinthian letter, your faith is in vain because it's not true. And even worse, we're lying about God if it's not true. So there are these implications. If Christ isn't resurrected from the dead, if there's no resurrection, then Christ isn't resurrected, then we're wasting our time. We're wasting our effort. 
Our belief is in vain. Our practices are in vain. There's no reason to go to church. Sleep in. Eat donuts. Watch football. I mean, I don't know. Baseball. It's baseball season. But if it's not true, why are we here? That's what he's saying. If the dead aren't raised, then Christ isn't raised. Then he raises it up another level in 17 through 19. He says, your faith is empty. Then here's the, here's the heavy hammer. If Christ isn't raised, you are still dead in your sins. Now, it's one thing if you just want to follow Jesus and feel good about yourself and all that. If, it wasn't, if he's not resurrected, Jesus still teaches a good way to love other people and live. And that's what some people would say, right, about it. Okay, you can practice religion and you can try to be a more loving person. That's great. Paul goes, that's not even the limit of it, though. The really bad part of it is, if he's, if he's not raised from the dead, then you're still guilty in your sin. You have no grace. You have no forgiveness. You have no peace with God. And the people who have died are truly gone, he says. In other words, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, there's no hope for us. With regards to our relationship with God himself, life after this, if there's no resurrection, this is it. Then he says, then he really amps it up with this whole consequence thing. He says, if this is all we have, then we are the people that ought to be seen as most pitied. Now, why would he say that? Because of what I said earlier, following Jesus in his day could cost you absolutely everything, including your life. They would execute Christians for saying they were Christians. So you didn't go to church like, hey, I'm going to check out Paul's new church. This will be cool. You snuck into church so the Romans didn't know. You... you in fact, that's what Paul calls out sometimes about hiding our faith and not living with boldness in front of Christ. Why? Because they were worried about their livelihood, about their life. There were marketplaces where you had to pay homage to a certain God to be able to buy and trade in the marketplace. You just became a Christian. What's one thing you cannot do? Worship another God. What does that mean? You can't buy and sell in the marketplace. You just lost your livelihood because of your faith in Christ. Your membership in the Stonemasons Guild had something to do with praying to some god every time you met. You can't do that anymore. That was your work network. It's gone. Your spouse didn't say yes to Christ and you can't tell her. She'll turn you into the Romans and you'll be dead. Now you've lost your spouse because of your faith in Christ. These were the decisions they were making when Paul says, follow the gospel. These were the implications. And so he says, if it's not true then we're the most pitiful people on the planet. We're believing a lie and it's costing us everything for no reason. That's crazy, is what he's saying. Why would we put ourselves through this if it's not true? Why would we allow ourselves to fall that way if it weren't true? Then he calls Jesus. He says, but it is true. And because it is true, Jesus is the first fruits. Now what's he talking about? First fruits. How is Jesus fruit? It's a weird analogy, except it's a Jewish thing. It's about har it's a harvest analogy. And the Jewish people would take the first fruits from their harvest and offer them to God. It was the best of the best of the harvest. Now, why would he use a harvest metaphor? 
Because Jesus, by appearing to the twelve and then to the many and being resurrected, has started a whole new way of living, a whole new group of people called his church. In the Old Testament, you see Israel, you hear people of God. New Testament, Christians, people of God. And Jesus is the first one resurrected of this whole new thing. First fruits of the harvest. If he's raised from the dead, which we believe he is, then he is the first fruits. Then he gets all theological on us. Verses 20 through 24. He says, just like sin entered the world through one man, through Adam. By the way, if you've ever wondered if Adam was a real person, Paul just referred to him as a real person. Sin entered the world through Adam and it affected everybody. But just like sin entered the world through one, sin, and everybody tied to Adam, which is everybody, we're all connected to Adam in some way. The same way that happened, life entered the world through one man for everyone found connected to Jesus. Now don't misunderstand this verse. It's not an equation thing in terms of numerical, as in everybody gets a free pass to heaven, because that's not what Paul's saying. Everybody was connected to Adam and his sin, period. Everybody. Everybody has life that's connected to Jesus. How are you connected to Jesus? By faith in the good news that he received and passed on to them. The equivalency here is one man and one man. And everybody tied to those two people. Are you still connected to Adam? Or have you been found as part of the new harvest in Christ? That's the question. And he's saying the resurrection is the power to make that possible. That if we have faith in his death and resurrection, then we have this new life and we're part of the people of God. Now, if it's true, this is confusing, if it's not true, then we have no hope and we're lost and we're still in our sin and we should be pitied. The correlation is true in the other direction because it is true. Our faith is not in vain. We have hope. We have life because it is true. The resurrection has power in our life. It's not a holiday we just celebrate. Oh, it's Easter. Jesus did a good thing. Resurrection is our identity. And because it's our identity, we kind of echo Paul's words. I didn't deserve to be forgiven. I didn't deserve to be counted among his followers. I didn't do anything special to earn it. But God decided to place his grace on me. And because he did, I've done anything and everything I can for Jesus. And that is our response. We are Easter people and our response is to be like Paul and to do everything we can to make sure everyone we can is connected to Christ. To respond to the good news that has been entrusted to us by Paul means to do anything and everything we can. Now, I don't mean like go earn God's love. What I mean is Easter is our identity if we have faith in Christ. And that's why we do. If we really believe the resurrection is true, it ought to be the power to change how we live. If we just think it's a thing, it doesn't have any transforming power whatsoever. If we find our identity in Christ, it changes everything. And that's what Easter is for. That's what celebrating the resurrection is all about. 
Because we are Easter people. And because Christ was resurrected and he did wit- was witnessed to by other people and because they entrusted the gospel to us, we have life and have it to the full. Let's pray. Jesus, we say thank you. We don't just mark a holiday. We don't just mark an opportunity for cool new clothes. Help us to live as Easter people. Show us the power of your resurrection in our life. Put us on a path towards restoration. Not because it's anything we did or because anything we deserve, but because through us, the whole world may know your good news. In Christ's name, amen.